Well, good morning and, and welcome again to, to Hebron. Uh, the title that I've given to today's message from this passage is Second Chance Christianity. And uh, I think the reasons for that will become apparent uh, as we go on. And as always, you'll find it useful to have your Bible open at the passage in John 21. Uh, This is John's last uh, post-resurrection account that he gives. It's actually unique to John's gospel. Uh, He's the only one that records this. Um, And it doesn't take place near where the tomb of Christ was. It's not in the environment of Jerusalem. It's a way up in the north. It's a way up in Galilee. And it's really all for the benefit of one person. Everything is set up. The occasion is completely orchestrated for the benefit of Peter. It's to do with his restoration and his recommissioning. Peter, who had denied the Lord so publicly and so vehemently with oaths uh, and with with curses. If you remember, at the tomb, when the women first of all realized it was empty and the angels uh, appeared to them and said that the Lord was risen, uh, they said, take this message to his disciples to go up into Galilee. And then they specifically added, and give it to Peter as well. Peter was particularly highlighted big, bold, brash Peter, who boasted that even although all the other disciples may well desert Christ, uh, that he would never do that, that he was prepared to go to prison and even to death itself for the sake of his master. And yet, as we know, under the questioning of a servant girl before the fire in the courtyard of the high priest, Three times he said, I I don't know the man. I was never with him. And of course, then the cock crowed. And, And just at that point, Jesus looked at Peter. And it records that he went out and he wept bitterly. And something happened, I think, in the soul of Peter that night. Tremendous sense of failure, uh, of, of shame, and of unworthiness. And I think that's what lies behind this scene here. Uh, going back up to Galilee, back to his home area, back to his fishing, back to his old life. It's almost as if those three years that he'd walked and traveled with Jesus had never taken place at all. It was almost as if they were just a blip. And now he was going back to the way it had been before, to his old life uh, and the fishing. You know, I think in some ways many of us have felt like that, a sense of unworthiness and a sense of of failure, letting the Lord down badly, uh, to the extent that we don't feel that we're fit to carry on. And we are tempted at times just to throw in the towel and just, just give up and go back. There are, of course, many reasons for people turning back from Christ. Some people just reject him out of hand. There are some people who have been attracted and then make a deliberate decision, despite that appeal, to turn away. There were a group of people like that. It's recorded in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. And it says that they they trampled underfoot again the blood of Christ. 
the Son of God. They, they made a deliberate decision. And for those people that said that there was a fearful looking forward to of judgment, apostates who deliberately chose to re- reject Christ. But that's different from what we have here. That's different from a child of God who, who falls and who falters. John writes about this actually again in his letter, his first letter in chapter 3, where he says, If our hearts at times condemn us, then God is greater than our hearts, and, and he knows everything, and there is the possibility of restoration. And, that, and that's exactly what we have here in this passage. It's the great principle of where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And I think all of us can take great encouragement from the Lord restoring Peter here. It's the great principle from Psalm 23 that we heard sung earlier, that the Lord restores my soul. Now, I don't know if you reckoned or, or picked this up, but there's a, there's a real sense when you read this passage uh, of, of deja vu. You, you, you read it and you think, you know, I've been here before. Um, this, this rings a bell for me. Uh, and, and you would be right. Because if you were to go back, for instance, to Luke chapter 5, which is the, the narrative of when Peter is first called and first commissioned by Christ to be a fisher of men, much of the detail is, is very, very similar. All the same elements are there. He's in the fishing boat. He's been out all night. He's caught nothing. The Lord gives instructions to put the, the net down and there's a big catch of fish. The whole thing, it's almost if it's, as if it's a replay that takes place here when you read it. And I think there is a reason for that. And I think the reason is this, that Peter is being reminded of his original moment of meeting Christ and realizing who he is. He's being reminded of that original call of Christ to his life, to follow him and to be a fisher of men. And it's, he's being reminded not to forget that. And that that message is being re-emphasized again now on this occasion. And it's just being reaffirmed and restated to him. It's done deliberately. It's a little bit like what was uh, recorded in the life of Jonah, the reluctant prophet who, when God called him, ran in the opposite direction and didn't want to comply. And yet God in his mercy speaks to him and it's said that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, the second time saying, go to Nineveh. And and that's that's massively encouraging for, for many of us that there is the second chance and that, that he restores our soul. You know, the Lord had actually previously predicted this as far as Peter was concerned. Back in Luke 22, he had spoken to him personally and directly and said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And and when you have turned back, I want you to strengthen your brothers. He didn't say, and if you turn back. He said, when you turn back. And this, this situation here 
is the turning back of Peter. You know, I think it is good for us, very good for us spiritually, to go back to the beginning of our meeting with Christ. Not, not just from a sense of nostalgia uh, or romance, but as a, a reminder of the reality of what happened when we met Christ and we were converted and what it really meant to us at that time. Sometimes you can fall from the height of that. You can lose the sense of the wonder of it all. I think that's why our Sunday night thoughts when we have people giving their story of conversion is such an encouraging thing. I certainly found it encouraging going back again and just going through the elements of how I came to know Christ at the beginning. And I think Peter is almost being forced to do that in this way. And it's such an atmospheric scene, isn't it? Uh, You've got the fishermen, the boat, the nets, the early dawn, the mist, the stranger on the shore, the smoke from the fire on the beach with the the fish uh, and the bread. Uh, I have to confess that as I read this scene, um, I have a soundtrack that plays in the back of my mind. Uh, there's There's an old clarinet player called Acker Bilk. And he's got, a, he's got a tune called The Stranger on the Shore. Uh, and that's what I think about when I read this, this passage. It's a new day. The dawn is breaking. And I think there's something almost symbolic in that of the resurrection of Christ. The stranger standing alone, silhouetted with the mist uh, upon the shore, on the beach. And I also think it's symbolic of the, the renewal of this recommission of the flawed and of the fallen disciple Peter. That the Lord Jesus Christ in all his goodness is able to deal with his failure and with his shame. And, and that, of course, is the wonderful message of the gospel. That we are so delighted to be able to announce Sunday after Sunday the great news that for failed, fallen people, there is the, 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 the risen Christ in all his glory uh, who, who comes to us and who's able to offer forgiveness and to deal with our greatest need. I'd like to make a few points about the moment of, of recognition. You know, they're not, they're not quite sure of what's going on here. Um, there's a voice that comes from the beach uh, they're, they're, they're peering, they're, they're screwing up their eyes, wondering who it is. Uh, and then eventually, you know, John it is who says, you know, it's, it's the Lord. It's the Lord who's there. And Peter just plunges into the water a hundred yards from the shore and splashes his way uh, to the beach. This awareness and recognition that the risen Lord is there to greet and to meet them. You know, in many ways, this kind of scene will be the, the experience of all believers. You know, when the, when the mists of time have all rolled away, and we pass from this world into the next one, you know, standing upon the shore will be somebody who will not be a stranger to us. And we will be saying, as they said here, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And as John penned in his letter later on, you know, and we will see him 
as he is. What a tremendous hope as far as every Christian is concerned. But there is a sense of, of, of seeing him, of having this recognition that it's the Lord as far as our present experience is concerned as well. Because that's really the definition of what it means to be a Christian at all. It's to come to that point when, you know, we suddenly are aware. It's revealed to us. It's almost as if the scales come off our eyes and and we see who Christ is. The glorious person of the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And I confess Him as my Lord and my Master because I'm aware of His greatness and His glory. And that is the great thing about these testimonies. And so good for us just to reflect upon that moment when we see the Lord in that sense uh, for the first time. Well, breakfast takes place on the beach. And then there are these questions. Really just one question. And, and we realize, of course, that here is the, the reason. This is, this is the main purpose for this whole episode. He says, Simon, interesting, he uses his old pre-conversion name because he had been renamed Peter the Rock. Simon, his old name. Do you love me more than these? This This is the whole reason for this situation. And of course, he's referring to the other disciples when he says this. You see, Peter had once claimed... Uh, referring to the other disciples, that although they would all leave, he would stand true and he would be firm. And they all knew what he had done. And it was all so very public. And he had once been their spokesman. And could he ever be that again? And, And what did they think of Peter? And that's why this was done with the other disciples present at the time. Now, All the commentators uh, point out that there is a nuance uh, in the words that we have here, the word for love. When, When Jesus says, do you love me? He uses a very strong word. When Peter answers and says, Lord, you know I love you, it's not as strong a word. It's almost as though Peter has lost his confidence because he knows of what he said before and the big boasts and the big claims and assertions he'd made before and how he'd broken down and uh, he hadn't been able to keep that. And it's as though he's, he's not confident and he feels that he can't just use that strong word for loving Christ that Christ asks uh, of him. But, but this is the question, isn't it? This is the question of all questions that comes to us this morning too. For all of us, do you love me? Do you, do you love me? And that's more important than me thinking about how well qualified I am, of the nice tidy life that I might lead, about my abilities, about my generosity, about what I do for the Lord or think I do for the Lord. It's it's my love for Christ. That's what he is interested in, more right to the heart. It's do I love Christ? And all of us, I think, need to be reflecting on that again and need to be trying to answer that question. Do you love me more than these? 
more, more than anyone, more than anything, that is the test, the true test of whether we are Christians or not. That defines if a person is a Christian. It's their love in their heart for Christ. I remember many years ago, I'm at a wedding and um, having a walk with a, with a chap. Uh, and he was telling me about uh, his brother-in-law. Um, and his brother-in-law at one point had been a very energetic uh, and, and keen Christian. Then he got a big job. And he said, really, you know, his, his work became the most important thing uh, in his life. Uh, he, he lived for that. And it just took over uh, everything. And, and all the Christian stuff, or most of it, was, was just allowed to kind of fizzle out. I, th- I think later on in life, that was kind of recaptured for that man to some extent. But that has always stuck with me. Um, especially when you read this, do you, do you love me? More than, more than, more than anything. Um, and it could be anything for us. A person, um, possessions, you know, a situation. Do you love me more than these? And that question is asked of Peter three times. And isn't it interesting? Three times he denies Christ. Three times this question is asked. And there is the opportunity of him responding. And on the back of that response, there is a recommissioning. Lord, you know everything. You know my heart, all my failings, how reluctant I am to put myself forward, to make big claims for myself. But you know that in my heart, although my love might be such a small thing, I do love you. And the Lord did know that. And because of that, he recommissions him. And what he says to him is, uh, I want you not just to tell me that you love me, but to show that you love me. To show that you love me by, by feeding my lambs, by tending my sheep, by caring for them. It's good for us to remember, as far as the flock of God is concerned, that they are his lambs, not ours. They are, they are his sheep that need to be tended for him. And Peter would develop this in his own letters that he writes to persecuted Christians. He makes this point. He says in chapter 5, he says, I want, I want you guys to, to shepherd the flock, to do it properly. Don't, don't lord it over people. And don't do it because you feel you have to do it. And don't do it for the pay, but do it willingly. For the sake of the chief shepherd himself, under whose supervision you act. Of course, we all know that on one occasion the Lord Jesus referred to himself as the, as the good shepherd. I wonder if P- Peter ever referred to himself as the flawed shepherd. I am the flawed shepherd. But the flawed shepherd who still tries to give his life for the sake of Christ's lambs. And how would it go with Peter? His his sense of apprehension now in his own ability. Well, the Lord, if you will notice, goes on to give this uh, prediction. He says, you know, Peter, when you're old, you know, somebody else is going to carry you where you don't want to go. 
I think Peter looked down the road and he feared there was going to be another big car crash as far as his witness for Christ was concerned. But in these words, I think they are more of an encouragement to to Peter rather than a sense of anxiety. Yes, Christ is talking about the fact that he would be martyred. He's talking about the fact that one day he would die for the sake of Christ, that life would not be easy for Peter. But in that, encompassed in that, is the sense that, Peter, you'll be true to the end. You will stand firm. You know, you will be faithful. You will fulfill your commission. You will endure. And that must have come as a great encouragement to him. Now, it's at this point, as we close, Peter turns round and his eye catches John, the writer of the gospel. And he says, "Uh, that's fair enough for me. What about him? You know, what what will this man do? What does the future hold as far as he's concerned? And that's shut down fairly quickly uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, what he says is this. Don't you get involved. That's, that's not your problem. This isn't your concern. Uh, that's not shepherding. That's putting your nose in where it shouldn't really be. And uh, isn't that so true to life? You know, so many of us concerned with other people and what they should be doing, and what they should be involved. And there is, there is a right shepherding sense of that. But we know there is, you know, just a sense that it's really not, not of our concern. The thing that is of our concern, the thing that is the priority of all priorities, and that the Lord brings him back to is this, you know, what is that to you? You concentrate, you concentrate on following me. That's the message that comes to all of us today. All of us who fall and who fail, follow Christ. Here is the picture of of the stranger on the shore waiting to restore our soul, to give us the second or maybe the third or fourth chance if we respond to that searching question that comes to us all again today. Do you love me more than these? Can we say, Lord Jesus, I love you. I know you're mine. Now, let's have a moment's prayer. And may God bless you all. Lord, we pray that this passage of Scripture will be both an encouragement as well as, as, as a challenge to us. And may there be love found in our hearts for the wonderful Savior of sinners, our Lord Jesus Christ. And help us to care for his lambs as he would want us to, as we pray in his name. Amen.